Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Son la sal de la tierra, pero si la sal se vuelve insípida, ¿cómo recobrará su sabor? Ya no sirve para nada, sino para que la gente la deseche y lo pistoye. Ustedes son la luz del mundo. Una ciudad en lo alto de una colina no puede esconderse, ni se enciende una lámpara para cubrirla con un cajón. Por el contrario, se pone la retiza para que alumbre a todos los que están en la casa. Hagan brillar su luz delante de todos, para que ellos puedan ver las buenas obras de ustedes, y alaben al Padre que está en el cielo. This is the word of the Lord. All right, well, uh, those who don't know me, my name is Abe Cho, and I'm on staff here at Redeemer East Harlem. My title is Minister in Residence, uh, and I started at the beginning of September. Uh, part of what I do is to help uh, just with some of the preaching and teaching, but also teaching classes. So if you haven't signed up, we're going to be having our first class after the service today on introduction to a biblical worldview. Uh, but I get to bring God's word to you today, which is always a privilege to me. Uh, my family and I, we love uh, the Marvel movies. Uh, we love Lord of the Rings. Uh, we love Avatar, The Last Airbender. Anybody familiar with that one? Okay. Uh, we love this new thing called the Grishaverse, and there's things that are out there. Uh, we also love Dune, which we just saw. Uh, one of the things that we love about all those types of stories, kind of like these fantasy worlds, is the creation of worlds. Uh, that you enter into these stories, you enter into these universes, and you see these authors creatively building an entire world. And for me, what's always the most interesting about what I find most interesting about all that is actually the creation of kingdoms within these larger worlds. I think of Lord of the Rings, you might be most familiar with that. There are the elves and the dwarves and the uh, kingdoms of man and that sort of thing. Or if you take Dune, just as an example, I know many of you haven't seen it, so I promise I won't spoil it. But Dune, if you look at that kind of the planet that they end up on, it's this desert environment. And that environment creates distinct clothing and architecture. It also means that that culture and civilization has unique resources. And around those resources, unique economies begin to emerge. And then the entire culture and civilization has distinctive values and customs, social norms, even political arrangements, and the better the world builder, the more consistent that culture is. You start to get a sense uh, that to be a part of this particular kingdom means you're entering into an entirely different way of life. And each of these kingdoms and these stories kind of grow in their own way. Some of them grow through conquest. Others grow in advance by keeping peaceably to themselves. Uh, others grow through commerce and trade. But each of these kingdoms takes on their own unique texture. It's credible that there's something compelling even about these kingdoms and these worlds. Here at Redeemer East Harlem, we've been in a series called Thy Kingdom Come. And the premise of this series has been to be a Christian means that you've entered into an entirely new kingdom, the kingdom of God. 
And to be part of this kingdom is to enter into an entirely different way of life. You see the world, you inhabit the world in radically new and different ways. It doesn't mean that you're now in a kingdom where you have different clothes or different architecture. But it does mean you've entered into a kingdom where there's a different kind of social arrangement. It's a kingdom where there's a different kind of economy even. A different set of values, different set of priorities. It's a kingdom where the poor are blessed. This is what we've been going through, the Beatitudes of the Sermon on the Mount. It's a kingdom where the meek are considered strong. It's a kingdom where mourners are valued. It's a kingdom where the merciful are called mighty. It's a kingdom where the persecuted are considered heroic. And today what we're doing as we continue in this, this series, we're looking at how this kingdom, the kingdom of God, how this kingdom grows and advances. And we're going to learn that it grows and advances like no other. It grows and advances like salt and light. So let's look at this call that Jesus lays out before every Christian, uh, everyone who would consider coming, following after him. There's this call to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. So let's look at three headings to help us work through this passage. First, we're going to look at what this calling assumes. What does it assume about being salt and light? Secondly, we'll look at what it means. And then lastly, what it requires. Okay, so first, uh, what it assumes, this whole metaphor of being the salt of the earth and the light of the world, it assumes something that's so obvious that we can kind of zoom by it and not give it, I think, it's, it, the, the, the attention that it's due. And the assumption that it's making is that for both salt and light, in order to serve its purpose, it must be different, and it must remain different. So here's how one theologian, John Stott, puts it. He says, Jesus' teaching here is built on the assumption that Christians are different. It issues a call to Christians to be different, and he continues like this. Probably the greatest, uh, greatest tragedy of the church throughout its long and checkered history has been its constant tendency to conform to the prevailing culture instead of developing a Christian counterculture. It assumes there's a difference. In order for salt to be salt and serve the world, it must be different. In order for light to dispel darkness, it must be different. In fact, if you look at the text, what's the greatest danger that faces the salt of the earth? Verse 13 it says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. That the greatest danger for the disciples of Jesus, the greatest danger for those who propose to follow Jesus is a temptation to be just like everyone else. That if a lamp gets lit but because it's afraid of disrupting the darkness, it gets covered up in a bowl. And you know what happens to a lamp when it gets covered up? It goes out. It completely gets snuffed out. That this temptation to try to avoid or deny or downplay a Christian distinctiveness, this desire to maybe fit in, to be just like others, Jesus says is maybe one of the greatest dangers. It is an abdication of the very calling of what it means to be salt and light. Salt can't do any good if it's embarrassed of being salty. Light 
can't do any good if it's afraid of being light. Now, here's the thing. Jesus here is not talking about difference just for its own sake, difference for the sake of being different. In fact, there's probably nothing more obnoxious than the people you know who are just different for the sake of being different. Jesus is saying the reason why Christians are called to be different it's because Christians are conformed to a higher re- reality. So Dr. King has a great sermon on this uh, titled Transformed Nonconformists. And this is where Dr. King talks about the high, one of the highest calls of a Christian is to be creatively maladjusted to a world that has far to become far too adjusted to the darkness of our time. It's not difference for its own sake, but a difference because we're conformed to the echoes of a different drum. So here's what Dr. King says in that sermon. He says this. Our world needs a dedicated circle of transformed nonconformists. Our planet teeters on the brink of annihilation. Dangerous passions of pride, hatred, and selfishness are enthroned in our lives, and men do reverence before the false gods of nationalism and materialism. The saving of our world from pending doom will come not through the complacent adjustment of the conforming majority, but through the creative maladjustment of a non-conforming minority. We must make a choice. Will we continue to march to the drumbeat of conformity and respectability, or will we, listening to the beat of a more distant drum, move to its echoing sounds? Will Will we, risking criticism and abuse, march to the soul saving music of eternity? He says, what we need is a generation of women and men whose souls are so keyed into the drumbeat of the rhythm of the kingdom of God, so conformed to the beats of heaven that they live radically non-conformed life, or I like to say joyfully non-conformed lives. There's another place in uh, more of Dr. King's writing. This is, comes from his book, uh, Where Do We Go From Here? Where he says, he talks about, uh, there's a, in Greek literature, in the Odyssey, there's a story of uh, Odysseus, who's he's on his ship with his men, and he knows he has to go by the sirens. If you, might, if you know this song, the sirens are creatures who sing these beautiful songs. And every time uh, sailors hear these songs, they end up veering towards the sound of the sirens, and they strip, shipwreck their entire ship, and everybody dies. And in one version of the story, Odysseus in in the Odyssey is going through the sirens and he wants to hear the music, but he knows that he can't. So he he tells the men on his ship, I want you to tie me to the mast of the ship, but I want to hear this song. So I'm not going to put wax in my ears, but all of you put wax in your ears and you tie me to the ship. And no matter what I shout or threaten, no matter what I do, do not untie me to the ship. And so it works. Odysseus goes through, he hears the song of the siren, but because he's been restrained physically, he's not able to destroy the ship. Well, Dr. King goes on to say, did you know there's another version of that story? And it's not uh, Odysseus and his men, but it's actually Jason and the Argonauts. And Jason is doing the same thing on a boat with his men and about to go past the sirens and is afraid he's going to shipwreck his entire ship. But you know what Jason does differently than Odysseus? Rather than having his men tie him and restrain him physically to the mask, what Jason has done is he's brought Orpheus along. And in that moment where the sirens begin to sing, he knows there's only one person in all of the land who can sing a far more beautiful song than the sirens, and that's Orpheus. And Orpheus pulls out his lyre, 
And he begins to sing a song that is so beautiful, so compelling, so moving. The song of the sirens loses all of its power. When it comes to being joyfully different from the world, we can either try to be joyfully different because we're restraining ourselves from the temptations around us. Or there's another way to be joyfully different from the world. And that is to have our hearts tuned to a far more beautiful song. Our ears uh, immersed in a far more compelling and moving and beautiful tune. It is in our souls to find ourselves tuned to the drumbeat of a more distant drum. The very beat of the kingdom of heaven. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. Do you want a life that's synchronized to the cadences of a greater song? Well, Jesus is saying, look, this song, this song is a world where it's the weak who are lifted up. This song is a world where mourners are embraced. This song is that world where people would rather be persecuted than to persecute. This song is a world where it's meekness that's lifted up. This song is the world remade entirely. And what Jesus is asking you and me, he's asking us, do you hear a more beautiful drumbeat? Do you feel a more compelling cadence in your bones? Can you feel in your chest the drumbeat of this far greater kingdom? Or the way that I, lo I love how one philosopher, it's actually Frederick Nietzsche of all people who said this. He said this, he says, those who dance were judged to be mad by those who couldn't hear the music. Let me say that again. Those who dance were judged to be mad by those who can't hear the music. Look, you might be here and you're not quite sure what you believe about Christianity. Maybe you grew up in it or maybe you've known friends and you're kind of interested. Have you seen someone else's life dancing to a different beat? Have you asked yourself, what if there's a greater song that I'm supposed to be living for? Have you looked at the dance of others and said, either they're crazy or maybe I'm missing something. Jesus says, in order to be salt and light, it assumes that Christians are going to be visibly and joyfully different from the world. Dancing when the entire world merely marches in conformity. And so that's what it assumes. And I want to ask us two questions. I know I'm the preacher here, but I'm trying to be nice. So I'm going to lean into this, but then I'm going to back off, okay? I'm going to ask you two questions, and I'm going to try to go easy on you. But let me ask you this first question. I remember a friend that said this to me in passing years ago and never forgotten it. He said, Abe, one of the things that I like to, you know, in my imagination, think about is this. Uh, I like to imagine that if there was an investigation, if I was being investigated as to whether I was a follower of Jesus, like in my workplace, in my neighborhood, in my building, in my family, in my if I were being investigated as to whether I were a follower of Jesus, would there be enough evidence to convict? And I'm not talking about, oh, we found Christian t-shirts in this guy's drawer. 
I'm not talking about, yeah, we found that DC Talk album, that cross-movement album, it was hidden, but we, that's not what I'm talking about. Is there enough in your life that if they were to investigate, we're looking for followers of Jesus, is there enough to convict? Okay, I'm going to back off, I'm sorry. But it's an important question, I think. Or a second question I want to ask us is this. Uh, do you hear the drumbeat of the kingdom of God regularly? Like, I'm not talking about, oh, yeah, I think I've heard that tune before. I'm not talking about, oh, yeah, 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 that, that sounds familiar. I'm talking about, do you know the drumbeat of the kingdom of God so deep in your bones that you can't help but hum that all day long? Or another way to put it, my family, we love karaoke. I am gloriously mediocre. So if you ever want to come to karaoke and feel like, oh, if he could do this, I could do this, come with me. Uh, but there's nothing like karaoke that shows you how little you actually know a song. And so I'll pick a song, I'm, oh, I love this song, I know it. And I pick up the microphone and I go to sing the lyrics and it's like, I have no idea how the song goes. Do you know the songs of the kingdom so deep in your bones? that you would crush it at karaoke. That it's actually tuning the rhythm, the cadences of your life. Listen, how many times do you have to hear a song before you can sing it front to back without lyrics in front of you? How many times can you sing a song and just belt it? How many do you have to hear it in order to belt it out? Do you know the Word of God like that? Do you know what life in this kingdom feels like so deeply enough that you can step out into the world and you're still walking to a cadence that those who danced were judged mad by those who could not hear the music. To be salt and light assumes that Christians will be creatively maladjusted will be joyful nonconformists, will be so t dialed into the rhythms of a distant kingdom that it might look a little bit like madness. Christian, is that true of you? Let's move on to the second point. Look at, let's look at what it means. So what does it mean to be salt? And what does it mean to be light? We'll move through this kind of quickly. Uh, first, salt. What does that mean? In ancient times, there was no refrigeration. In my little New York City apartment, I have two fridges, one big one that has all our food, and one smaller one that has all of our drinks. So even in just a small little New York City apartment, we have like one and a half refrigerators. But back in the day, if you can imagine, uh, there was no refrigeration. So salt was the only way you could preserve something from going bad. And so what Jesus means by saying, you are the salt of the earth, he's saying this. He's saying, to follow me means to work against social decay of all kinds. It means to enter into a culture. It means to enter into society. It means to be present in the society. And wherever you are, to work against the social and moral decay. There are lots of different ways a culture can go bad. There are lots of different ways they can go, uh, pursue unjust and immoral paths. And Jesus is saying to be a follower of Christ, to be a follower of me, is to go to the places of decay and to be salt, to be present. Uh, but it also is seasoning. So salt doesn't just prevent decay. Salt also seasons. So salt, which is unlike hot sauce, 
Hot sauce, which I love hot sauce. You name any hot sauce, I love it. I love Tabasco, I love Korean gochujang, I love Sriracha, I love Tapatio, I love Cholula, I love Texas Pete. You name the hot sauce, I love it. And we have an entire drawer that's almost all hot sauces. So I'm not knocking hot sauces, I love them. But the thing about hot sauces versus salt, hot sauces can cover over a multitude of sins. <laughs> salt draws out the goodness that's already there. They work in radically different ways. And so when Jesus says, be the salt of the earth, he's saying, go out, be the preservative in the places where there's social decay. But he's also saying, go out there and find the good and draw out the good that we see out there. To take what's good and what's great and what's God-honoring, what's beautiful, what brings flourishing, take that and as Christians to draw it out, to season society, to be so dispersed into society that you're bringing out all that is good. And so to be salt here in East Harlem means to work against social decay that we see here whatever form that might take. It means to be present. But it also means to enhance the good, to see the glory of what God is already at work and say, how can we draw that out even more to season the goodness? Or maybe uh, your, your, most of your hours are in your workplace. What does it mean to be salt and light in your workplace or in your industry? To find where there is decay and to bring about and to preserve, to bring about wholeness and healing. Or to find all that is good, all that God intends in your work and in an industry, and seasoning it with the presence of Christ. So that's what it means to be salt. But he also says Christians are called to be not just salt, but also light. Now, let's think about the light metaphor for a second. Uh, throughout the Bible, light almost always is used to refer to two things. First, uh, light illuminates. So light sheds light into darkness. Light means truth. It means speaking the truth of God into a place of darkness. It bring, means bringing the truth of the gospel into every area of life. But life, light also does another thing, doesn't it? Light warms. That there's something attractive about light. That there's something that draws people to it. That there's, there's a warmth to it. There's a, it symbolizes hope. And to follow Jesus he's saying, is to both bring the truth of the gospel, even when it might be hard for people to hear, but to bring that truth, the light of the gospel, to also bring it with the warmth of God's love, to make it attractive. Uh, when I was growing up, <clears throat> I grew up, you know, my parents were immigrants from Korea, so we never really had a lot of money, which meant that most of our vacations were just, we stayed at home. So we just kind of run around the playground, that sort of thing, backyard and that sort of thing. Uh, but there would be rare times where we would go on vacations. And whenever we went on vacations, uh, we never flew. It was too expensive. We always drove. And whenever we drove, we always stayed at the same place wherever we went. We always went to Motel 6s. Now, when I was growing up, because we never traveled, we almost never went to, on vacations, Motel 6 equaled complete luxury to me. So if I was told, hey, we're going to Motel 6 this summer, it's like I won the lottery. It's like the best thing in the world. And it might be because of that background where Motel 6 has this like deep place of affection in my heart. I still remember years ago there was an ad, a Motel 6 ad. None of you remember this because none of you care about Motel 6. But it stuck with me. 
And the ad uh, was Motel 6. It told all about you know, the features or whatever. There's not a lot of them. So it's a quick commercial, I suppose. Uh, but at the very end, the tagline was Motel 6. We'll keep the light on for you. And for me, I was like, they're keeping the light on for me. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's truth shining in the darkness, but it's also this welcome. It's a light that lights the way, the path. But it's also a light that welcomes home. And Jesus says to be salt and to be light is to light the way for others and to welcome that, them back home to the heart of God in Jesus Christ. Now, all of this must have sounded absurd to Jesus' original audience. To this point, he's talking to a small group of very marginal, inconsequential people. The disciples who have gathered around Jesus are not impressive. They're not power brokers. They're not influencers. They're not educated. They're not the elite. At this point, the Jesus movement early on is this small movement that started on the far outskirts of one of the greatest empires in human history. It was a small, marginal people. And Jesus is saying to them, yeah, you, not them, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And what I love about that, the beauty of the gospel, is that salt and light are both ordinary. One grain of salt is not going to preserve anything. But you put salt throughout the meat, and it can transform the world. One little beam of light can't change anything. But you have an entire movement of people transformed by this gospel. And so here's Jesus going to ordinary people, saying, you are the salt. You are the light. And what this means is this, every Christian, if you're here today and you would consider yourself a Christian, a follower of Jesus, uh, you have been given a dual calling. No matter how ordinary you feel, no matter, no matter how inadequate you might feel, the dual calling that God has given to you is in your corner of the city. Jesus saying, I've sent you there to dance to a different beat so that you can be salt prevent decay, enhance flavor, and light to those around you. You, yes you, on your block, in your family, on that basketball court, in that school, in your work, in your industry, in your network of friends, you're being sent out. Because when you think about salt again, real quick, and we'll move on to the last point, when you think about a steak and you go to salt it, if you want a, a steak salted, what you do not do is you don't go to your kitchen cupboard, grab the salt shaker, and just put the salt shaker on top of your steak. What do you have to do? You have to take that salt, maybe, and you have to actually scatter it throughout the meat. That it's not, the salt doesn't do its work of salting as long as they stay huddled together in fear. Huddled together in protection. But Jesus says to every one of us, the purpose of salt is not to stay together. The purpose of salt is to be sent out right where you are, right where God has placed you. So third and finally, so first we looked at what it assumes. It assumes that Christians are going to be joyfully different, creatively maladjusted. Secondly, what does it mean? It means to be salt and it means to be light. And we looked at both of those. Third and finally, uh, what does it require? 
And I just kind of mentioned this to us. In order for salt and light to do its work, it must get out, and then it must get in. That salt and light cannot have a self-preservation mentality, a mentality of fear that says we must keep ourselves distinct altogether. We must separate and protect ourselves from the big, rotting, bad world out there. Salt huddled together fails to do the job that it was sent to do. But salt and light must get out and it must get in. That it must go to where the decay, where the decay is. That light, again, can't be gathered under a bowl because the moment that light is placed under the bowl, it gets snuffed out. That salt and light both need to get out and they need to get in. That Christians must be known to be the ones who place themselves in the middle of darkness, in the middle of decay. And what does salt need to do in order to do its work? The Christian must get out in the middle of darkness and decay and be willing to expend itself completely to bring about good. Earlier this week, I watched uh, Brian Stevenson's, his TED Talk. If you haven't watched it, it's definitely worth watching. Brian Stevenson is a um, criminal justice lawyer. He's also an advocate for criminal justice reform. He started an organization called EJI, the Equal Justice Initiative. And he tells a story about growing up, how his grandmother was a huge figure in his life. And he remembers there was one time where everyone was over at his house with all of his cousins, and he had lots of siblings and that sort of thing. At one point, uh, the grandma came over and was staring at him. And he looked over, and his grandma was still staring at him, and he says, come over here. And grandma, he came over, and grandma gave him this big hug, like a big smothering hug. And he couldn't breathe, because it was just a big bear hug. And then he let him go, and he walked around the house. And later on, as, you know, uh, later on in that day, she came back and said, Brian, do you still feel me hugging you? And he said, yes, 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 I do, please. I still do. And Brian Stevenson talks about how that encounter and these other encounters with his grandmother completely changed the trajectory of his life. And later on when he was in law school and he was doing this criminal justice stuff, one of the main things that he realized that he needed to do was he, didn't, he couldn't just advocate for criminals in the justice system from afar, but he had to get proximate. That just like his grandmother had to come to him and give him this hug and have to come back and threaten him, do you still feel me hugging you? But Brian Stevenson knew that he needed to get into the lives of these young men in the criminal justice system. They needed to come and get proximate to get close. And that proximity with his grandmother completely changed his life. Because here's the point that I'm trying to make. You and I, we will never be able to get out and get in unless we know what it's like for someone else to have gotten out of their comfort zone and gotten into our places of decay, our places of darkness, our places of rebellion. Until you have someone else coming to you, being proximate to you, especially in your pain, especially in your sin, especially in your rebellion, until you've experienced the love of someone who is willing to get out and get in. There's no way you'll find the resources to do that for others. Friends, you know what the gospel of Jesus Christ tells us? It tells us that the great king of all the universe, the great king of this kingdom, got proximate with you in the very place of your decay and of your darkness. 
It shows us a picture of a king who refused to stay safe in the pristine light, in the pristine halls of his own palace. It shows a picture of a king who said, I must get out and I must get in to the places of darkness and escape. It's a picture of a king who expended himself completely, precisely in the place where we were farthest from from him. It gives us a picture of a king who didn't hold a single ounce back and he gave it all away. And it says, this king became most beautiful to you and to me. This light became brightest to you and to me the moment it was extinguished on the cross. That the salt transformed our lives the moment we realized we had trampled the salt of the earth under our feet with our sin, with our rebellion, with our rejection of him. Friends, have you experienced Jesus Christ meeting you precisely in the place of your decay and darkness? Have you seen the price he paid to heal, to restore, and to forgive you? Because if that's real to you, then of course, of course, we would be sent out to be the salt of the earth, to be the light of the world. See, because Jesus was saying, my love is starting a new kingdom, a new society. It's a new society with its new songs, its new drum beats, its new rhythms, its new power source. He's saying, if you come to me, if you tune your heart to my love, I'll send you back out dancing. So friends, let's come to him now. And let's receive his love again. Let's pray. Lord, show us your love in new ways right now. Lord, that in the place of some of our deepest decay, <clears throat> maybe places we're, we're even afraid to name or to share with others about, would you come and meet us there and show us your love expending itself to heal and restore us. Father, in a place of greatest darkness, Lord, help us right now, even with a, a, a trembling prayer, to invite you, the light of the world, into that darkness to set us free. And Lord, as we come and receive your love anew, transform us, tune our heart to a new song so that we might go out of this place offering that same hope to the world. So meet us now, we pray. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.